Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 103 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. This special Valentine's Day episode will include a panel on dating for geeks with guest geeks Eric Smith, Bones Rodriguez, and Marjorie Liu as well as a special presentation of my short story, Power Armor, A Love Story. But first, we've got an interview with acclaimed author and editor Jeff Vandermeer. He's best known for his books set in the grotesquely surreal city of Ambergris, such as City of Saints and Mad Men, Shriek and Afterward, and Finch. His latest novel is Annihilation, the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy, about the troubled attempts of a secret government agency to unravel the mysteries of Area X a stretch of coastline that's been invaded by some inscrutable otherworldly power. The film rights to the series have already sold to Paramount. So, Jeff Vandermeer, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, and so your new book is called Annihilation, and you've said that it was inspired by a dream. So tell us about that dream. <laughs> yes, it was quite an experience because it was one of those dreams where you don't uh, actually know that uh, you're sleeping, uh, and everything seems ultra real. So uh, basically, I was uh, walking down uh, the spiraling staircase in a, in a tunnel and noticed that there were these words on on the wall that were kind of glowing. And as I looked at them closer, I realized they were made of living material and eventually that they were getting fresher, <laughs> like whatever was writing them was uh, very close by. And then I saw kind of a shimmering light below around the corner and realized that if I turned the corner, I was going to see whatever it was. And at that point, some part of my subconscious writer brain was like, okay, that's enough. We do not need to see this thing because if we see this thing, we're not going to write the story. And so literally it was, I felt like my subconscious was coming over and saying, Hey, Jeff, you're in a dream. Let's get you out of here. And I woke up and uh, I immediately wrote this down, uh, the dream and then fell back asleep. And then in the morning I woke up again and immediately went to the typewriter. I mean, the, <laughs> the typewriter, <laughs> the, uh, the computer and, uh, and uh, wrote the first uh, few pages. Uh, and I was in this kind of altered state anyway, because I had rather severe bronchitis. And so all I could do is get up in the morning, write for a few hours and go to sleep and then repeat that process. Yeah, if I ever found myself typing on a manual typewriter, that's how I would know I was having a horrible, horrible nightmare. <laughs> well, yeah, I do sometimes actually type on a typewriter. <laughs> but <laughs> um, You know, I also read uh, your, your book on writing, Wonder Book. And um, in that book, you write, quote, dream logic usually isn't story logic. Dreams can be inspirational, but you can't usually transcribe them and come up with a story that makes sense to anyone but yourself. Could you just talk about that process of taking a dream and turning it into a workable story? Yeah, well, I mean, I have plenty of dreams um, that don't become stories. I had a dream once about uh, uh, Los Angeles being ravaged by giant fire-breathing dinosaurs, which I guess makes them dragons, but um, that I never turned into anything. Um, but basically... It's that there's something there that then expands outward and the mind begins to fill in the logic of it. Um, you know, there'd be no story uh, without the character of the biologist in Annihilation. And uh, that little bit of dream is is really just the kind of catalyst for all the rest of it. Um, the other catalyst for it was really uh, the fact that I've become so enamored of the, the wildlife and wilderness of North Florida, where I hike a lot. And so I've been wanting to write something with a setting that was like that for a while. 
And so that kind of combined in my imagination with the dream bits. And then the character came to me and the situations the character was in. And then I knew that I had a story. Mm -hmm. And you, you referred to the protagonist as, quote, the biologist. And that's because the, none of the characters in Annihilation have names uh, or physical descriptions. Uh, could you say why you decided to take that approach? Well, the names uh, is just purely a, a precaution on the part of the expedition because they've discovered over time uh, with the first few expeditions that modern tech and using names are clear pathways for whatever the thing is that's, that's in Area X to basically corrupt and eventually destroy the expeditions. And so that really isn't a Kafka-esque kind of thing that I'm doing there. That's something that's actually a practical application. Uh, but then that allows me to kind of, especially in also the second and third books, kind of have some ruminations in there about what names mean and what functions names have and the way that we draw a lot of information about characters and whatnot from their names, even though the name doesn't really convey anything about a person's character. Um, the other thing uh, that you mentioned, the uh, what was it, the function you said? That What was the, the second thing? The physical descriptions? Physical descriptions. Um, that was because uh, I felt that it kind of was in line with the the lack of names, but it also, I thought, created this uh, this interesting effect whereby they were totally defined by their actions and their and their dialogue and their interactions. First of all, which I I think kind of had a clarity to it, at least as I was writing it. And then secondly, it put them at a different remove from the landscape around them. And considering that nature is is so important to the novels. I thought that was useful. So, so in a way, not giving them physical descriptions, and, but having physical descriptions of the things around them creates a different effect. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Area X. Could you just say a little bit more about what is Area, Area X? Right. Well, basically, some unexplained event, uh, unexplained at least in book one, uh, has caused an area of um, very remote coastline to suddenly become kind of set apart from the rest of the world. And uh, there's more about it in the second book, but there's actually kind of a invisible border with a access point in it that kind of comes up around Area X. And uh, over the last 30 years, the Southern Reach, the secret government agency, has been sending in expeditions uh, with varying degrees of success, <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and uh, as you find out in book two, this has had really interesting effects on the secret agency itself, because if you can imagine something that even with turnover personnel and whatnot has tried for 30 years unsuccessfully to solve a problem, you're going to have some devolution of <laughs> command and control going on <laughs> um, in that situation. Mm -hmm. and, and you've said that Area X was is roughly based on the St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge in Florida. Uh, could you, for people who haven't been there, could you just give an idea of what it's like and, and how that informs the, the setting? Well, um, basically, it's, it's a series of transitional wildlife or, or, or biospheres in a, in a way. You walk out there and at first it's kind of like normal pine forest. And then that transitions to kind of cypressy pine swamp forest <laughs> which is my least favorite part because it's actually very creepy it's very much a kind of black water situation with these this still water and and uh, kind of a stillness and a watchfulness and then that eventually becomes um the salt marshes and the reeds and the the, the canals uh and lake area and then eventually that becomes the the beach and and, and the seashore uh, and there is an old lighthouse out there as well 
And it just seemed like a natural setting. And one thing about the novel that was so great was that I could relax into the setting. My, my prior novels, I'm creating the setting from scratch because they're all set in imaginary worlds. And here I could kind of relax into it. So, you know, it's never said that it's North Florida in the books. And I think that that kind of specificity would be wrong for these books. But, but that was the inspiration and, and all of those details. A lot of things that, that are in the book happened to me, like being charged by a wild boar. Um, I've had to jump out uh, over. For an alligator out there, I've seen a Florida panther once out there, which was amazing. So it's just a, just an amazing habitat and, and a very rich, fertile setting uh, mm-hmm. for something. Well, yeah, could you tell us more? I'm just curious, what is it like being charged by a wild boar? Like, what happens? <laughs> well, um, in, in our case, it charged us from a very long way away. Uh, and it could have smelled us, but we really have no idea. We had no idea as we were watching it charge towards us whether it had recognized us or not. And I was out there with a guy who uh, had told me he was ex-military. And uh, so we're standing there with an, a, a god-awfully long time to think about what we were going to do about this board charging, uh, which is not something I would have expected if you told me I was going to be charged by a boar. And so, you know, I took out my little gutting knife, which is very useful if you want to stab something that's already gored you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and my friend uh, had his walking stick, which he was like twirling around like nunchucks, which was not inspiring any confidence in me once <laughs> we just had this this very casual conversation because we couldn't really run because there was water to both sides about this thing that was like a very size of a very large german shepherd that was charging towards us <laughs> and um we uh finally got to a point where uh i said you know <laughs> um have you ever had this situation before and uh and and he said yes and i said well what did you do about it and he said, well, I was in a tank at the time. <laughs> I said, well, that, that helps not at all. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually about 15 feet away from us, it veered off into the water, which, uh, was kind of funny because it hadn't occurred to us that boars could swim. <laughs> and so we never had, had this thought that it was going, had an option other than to, <laughs> to gore us. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so, so that's actually in the book. Uh, Although the strange thing that happens at the end of that scene obviously did not happen to us. <laughs> hmm. That'd be funny if the guy you're with, he's like, oh, no, not again. Yeah. It's like how many times right, has this exactly. guy charged by wild boars? You know, it's like uh, they're like drawn to him or something. Really? <laughs> um, and you mentioned that, or I mean, this, this is just a re- uh, Annihilation is just an incredibly creepy book. Do you have like a, a specific approach you use to make a book feel creepy or do you just mm. sort of play it by ear or? I think there's a, there's, <laughs> there's stuff in the book that's creepy to the biologist. And then there's stuff to the biologist that's normal that's creepy to the reader. So there's those two different kind of levels. Um, I th- think I thought a lot about pacing. Um, there's a lot of things I learned from the last book, Finch. Um, and uh from reading for the various anthologies and there was a time when i didn't want to write novels for a while and so i was working on a lot of dev edits and 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 editing other people's novels and i learned a lot about pacing and so some of the unease comes from the way the reveals are dropped in there and the way it keeps curling back to the past and the fact that the biologist is kind of an unreliable narrator so there are kind of these layers of unease and different types of unease working through it um, and then I think there is also the fact that I love uh, the natural world, but there are moments when you're out there alone, when obviously you have these 
you may even, I mean, there have been moments out there when I've actually been lost, like in a thunderstorm <laughs> and not known where the heck I was. And so I think some of that comes through too, just the nature of the book uh, of, of being an expedition that's isolated, that uh, also doesn't know at a certain point if it can trust the information it's gotten from the very people who have sent them in there um, and not knowing whether that's for their protection or because something else more ominous is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a layering of different kinds of dread that I think kind of converge. Um, but the pacing of the book came very naturally to me, I think, because of studying all these other books before it. Yeah, and this is a very short novel. I mean, as by contemporary publishing standards, which I, I, I wish most novels were a lot shorter. Uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, um, uh, I think for this, this, I mean, the second novel is 95,000 words, and so is the third. Um, but they're not, they don't have kind of the, I, I think that, for an account like this, which is purportedly the, the journal entries of this biologist, I think longer would have, would be a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned that you were sick with bronchitis while you were writing this. Were you in a feverish state of mind at all? Did that in, uh, affect the story at all? Um, it gave me a weird clarity. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because it was impossible to become fragmented. I was so tired that I, I hardly, I mean, I, I didn't get on the internet. I couldn't do anything else. All I could do is work on this thing and sleep. And um, so none of those usual things I have to guard against and that still seep in sometimes anyway uh, were, were an issue. Mm-hmm. I actually heard you say that there are scenes in this that you don't remember writing. Uh, <laughs> there are a couple of scenes. Like, which, which, like what's an example of a scene, a scene you just read now and you're just like, I don't know where, even where, where that came from? Um, probably parts of their initial expedition into. Um, the tunnel uh, and it may have been because i was taking parts of that from the dream as well but um, there were parts of that that um, i just didn't really remember and i would go back to the computer the next day and be like okay i wrote that that's interesting <laughs> um, and then every once in a while i'd be like i wrote that and that definitely doesn't belong <laughs> um, <laughs> that is going um, <laughs> that was bad whoever that other person was it came to my <laughs> computer and wrote that <laughs> Uh, in the you mentioned in the dream some some being was writing t- this text on the wall. Did you in your dream could you read the text or did you did any of that come out of your dream or did you have to invent that after the fact? That was actually the creepiest thing for me is that those words were actually in my head uh, after the dream and and I wrote them down along with the other stuff when I woke up that night and they have not changed <laughs> since since that point. I have been very kind of superstitious about editing them and it's kind of bizarre to me that they make a strange kind of sense hmm. was it was it the whole i mean in authority there's a fairly long section of this kind of writing was it yeah. how, how much of that was from the dream i think everything except like the last sentence or so oh wow and i needed i needed a little extra uh, and i felt really weird about adding the extra uh, and hopefully it sounds the same as the rest um but yeah, pretty much all of that. It was, that's why it was so, so strange. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, actually, I, just to give the list, the listeners an idea of how it goes, I have a section of it here I could read, or if you have it at hand, could you just read no. like the first sentence or so of, uh, of this? Oh, uh, yeah. I actually have, uh, I have authority here, in fact. Um, so I could probably. Yeah, let's see. I have read. it. It's page 96. 96. One second. Yeah, here we go. 
Where lies the straggling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner, I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that gather in the darkness and surround the world with the power of their lives, while from the dim-lit halls of other places forms that never could be writhe for the impatience of the few who have never seen or been seen. Hmm. Um, when, when you look at that now, do you have any idea where that came from? Does it, uh, does it echo anything you've read or anything? Or you know, it really hasn't. And then I thought, well, you know, probably it's from the mulch in the back of my reptile brain of reading like old uh, galaxy magazines and weird tales and whatnot. Uh-huh. You know, that part is probably from that mulch. And, you know, I couldn't be absolutely sure if I went back to those, if I wouldn't find some little echo of that either. So <laughs> I think that's probably where it came from. Um, <laughs> I have no other guess. <laughs> Um, well, what, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the sequel, Authority? Um, you said I saw you said that you wanted to write a quote a supernatural novel without a supernatural element. Uh, could you talk about yes. that? Well, you have the Southern Reach Agency, which has become kind of degraded, like I said, over over the thirty years. And my thought was that in a way, it's haunted. You know, they're they're all haunted by this place that they're trying to explore, and so that was kind of like my my guideline for what the the mood and atmosphere of the novel was going to be. They were going to be haunted by something that wasn't supernatural. They were going to be haunted by their memories and haunted by what they hadn't been able to accomplish. And so really, that really was part of what I um, set out to do. And so I was thinking, you know, well, what are, what are the tropes of, of supernatural fiction? And I went to, um, and this is a new blasphemy, I know, but I really love uh, Kubrick's The Shining and, um, the specific effects he creates in, in that movie. And there's, there's some great stuff he does. Like there's a TV in the center of a room with no cord coming out. Of course, that's possible now, but it wasn't then. <laughs> and there's all these little details he put in there that really enhance your, the sense of unease because you can't quite identify at first look what, why something is wrong. Uh, and so I was like, well, that's an interesting technique. Um, like for example, in The Shining, and this, this may be a continuity error. Uh, the carpet, the pattern of the carpet is going one way in one scene, and then a later scene, it's facing the other direction in the same hallway. That's an incredibly effective kind of almost subliminal thing to do to somebody, to a viewer, in terms of making them feel like something's wrong, but not quite knowing what it is. And so I thought, well, how can I kind of translate some of those effects? And, uh, and so that's, that's, that's what I did with authority. And then it's also in part based on, um, you know, when I, when I, when I had a day job, I, I had a lot of, a fair amount of interaction with government agencies, uh, worked for companies on the periphery of, of them. And I was always fascinated by the fact that even in modern times, <laughs> modern times, um, you know, you would have agencies that would have DOS based programs and you, and databases and, and all kinds of mixes of technology, almost like when you go into a modern city and you see a 16th century cathedral next to a skyscraper. And, and so I, I really, really also was interested in exploring that. Uh, and I also have worked for some fairly dysfunctional companies. So, so, so I have had some experiences that I thought would be of interest. Uh, and, and authority has kind of a streak, a streak of dark humor running through it, especially I think if you've ever been in any of those kinds of situations in, in, in organizations. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Yeah. Working for this place just seems like an absolute nightmare, you know? And <laughs> I mean, it does seem like, I don't know, if that was intentional or not, but it does seem like, you know, that the work environment is scarier than the supernatural threat. Yeah, I think, um, and I think that's actually true. I mean, uh, having 
had coworkers and myself commiserating in various situations, you know, it does take that kind of a toll. Uh, these, you know, toxic work environments are, are incredibly stressful. And, and, and I think, you know, the more we learn about stress and how it affects the body and everything else, uh, the more that those psychological things and those even kind of slightly dysfunctional workplaces are, are really affecting people's health and, and uh, are much more uh, kind of dangerous than we, we think about. So that's kind of just amplified in a way in the, in the, in authority. Mm -hmm. Um, are you a fan of, uh, sort of horror writers who do kind of workplace horror sort of stuff? I want to say, um, does Thomas Ligotti do stuff like that? I'm trying to. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, I adore Ligotti's, uh, workplace stories, which I believe are also based on personal experience. And, uh, uh, I think there's one called my work here is not yet done or something like that. And, uh, and although I didn't really draw on that directly or anything, I'm sure that was, you know, in the back of my mind a little bit. Uh, those are great stories and, and well worth worth checking out. And I think that's one of his great triumphs, actually, is that from going from being someone who was supposedly so influenced by Lovecraft, he eventually moved out of that influence, moved on to other more more interesting, I think, influences, but also then managed to take some personal experiences or or whatever and create some very modern horror of unease uh, using that that setting. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, some people have suggested that these books are uh, influenced by Lovecraft. Do you see how, to what extent, do you think that that's uh, that that's true? I understand, and that Lovecraft is shorthand for 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 talking about weird fiction to some degree. Um, where where it bothers me is just that um, the approach to style is completely different, and the approach to nature is completely different. Uh, you know, I'm fairly convinced that Lovecraft could see the long shadow of a mouse on a wall and, and run screaming from the room. I mean. You know, let alone be out in the wilderness area and enjoy it. Um, so his approach to nature to me is, is, um, is that it's not separate from like the old ones and stuff, that that's all manifestations of it in a sense. Um, in his indifferent universe and in annihilation, you have nature, which is just going along merrily in area X and doing what it will. And then whatever is also in effect there and subverting parts of nature and affecting the expeditions. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I mean, um, it's mentioned in authority that the um, some members of uh, of the Southern Reach feel that maybe Area X that, that it's less polluted or that it's not polluted at all compared to the outside world, and maybe they have some sympathy for Area X. Yes, I mean that's kind of the dilemma amongst the scientists. I mean, at the same time that um, you know that this is happening, the world is ecologically collapsing on the outside, and so you know the the issue is. To what extent is it important? Is it more important for human beings to survive, or is it more important for the planet to survive? Is the is the issue as framed by some of the people in these books? Um, and I tend to leave. I, I tend to not want to like definitively answer that question as the author. <laughs> more than I prefer to just kind of put characters in conversation about it. I mean, it comes up again in acceptance in various other ways. But, uh, but it is, it is an issue. And, and, and one thing that I think is really important and a question that science fiction and fantasy can kind of ask in some ways better by getting some distances, you know, what is it to see the world without the human gaze or to try to get beyond it? And you, you can't really get beyond seeing things through human eyes. But in the attempt to, to try to do that, you may get somewhere kind of interesting and some new perspective about the natural world. Mm -hmm. You know, I read this book, I read or I read, you know, Annihilation and then Authority and mm -hmm. then Wonder Book back to back. And so I noticed that uh, in Wonder Book, 
you mentioned an author named, I'm not sure how, sure how to pronounce this last name. It's S-H-Y-U. And there's a character with that last name in Authority. I was just wondering, was that all Tuckerization or something? S-H-Y. Oh, oh, yeah, uh, Shu. Uh, Jennifer Shu. Um, uh, yeah, um, the one thing about Authority is, um, you know, every once in a while, I just like to, I don't know. Yeah, basically, you're right. It, it is. It's, it's um, a combination in Authority of a couple of people that I know. Um, and not so much like to con- try to kind of conjure up their attributes as I don't know. I just, every once in a while I'll do that. Not with names that, that people will necessarily uh, know, because I think then it becomes kind of like fan fiction or something. Um, like Lovecraft's uh, mountains of madness is full of references to, to Clark Ashton Smith and whatnot, things like that, which I don't think really helps the atmosphere, but um, <laughs> it does help me sometimes as an anchor. I can't tell you exactly why. Um, but um but but it does it does help me with the characterization every once in a while. Uh so who is I mean could you just say who is Jennifer Shu and what Yeah, sort of- she's a she's a writer out of San Francisco um who uh was in our Clarion class of 2010 and has published some short stories in uh, the fantasy field and is working on a novel right now. Uh-huh. So uh, it was announced that the Southern Reach trilogy was bought by the film rights were bought by Paramount. Uh, what's the current status of that? Well, I think basically they're they're figuring out the form of what the movies might be because there's a lot of different ways you can go, especially considering that um, you know in Authority, especially you learn that you know you have 30 years of of secret agency a- agency history here. So you could go with the structure of the three books, or you could go with something that uses the three books as the base material for, for something else, uh, that explores all those nooks and crannies that aren't explored in authority of how the Southern Reach has been dealing with Area X. Um, so that, that's really where it is right now is that they need to read acceptance and then we'll go from there. Uh-huh. All right, cool. So you've also been involved with the Shared Worlds, uh, writers workshop. Could you just tell us about that? Yeah, um, seven years ago, uh, the director of Shared Worlds, uh, Jeremy L.C. Jones, contacted me and brought me in on this amazing project, uh, which I now am co-director of, Shared Worlds, which is a teen science fiction fantasy writing camp out of um, Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And basically every uh, year, we get 60-plus kids from all over the world who come to Shared Worlds. And for the first week of Shared Worlds, they get in groups of 10. And they create their own fantasy or science fiction world. Uh, they have, you know, help from Wofford faculty in various aspects of like biology and politics and everything else. So they can have those resources to draw on. Um, and then in the second week, they write stories set in those worlds. And we find it's very effective for a couple of reasons. Kids who are, you know, 13 to 17 don't always know exactly what they want. And so by the end of the first week, they have a good idea of whether they really want to go into writing or if they like gaming more, they like illustration. And so we have some resources, uh, for those things, um, or if they want to, you know, stick with the world building, but they do get to do that in a story in the second week. And it's really effective because they have a personal stake in it because they built the world, but it's not so personal, like their own personal writing that, that they feel uncomfortable sharing it or get blocked writing. And, um, and then at the end of the second week, they get a critique from a professional writer, um, and a one-on-one session. And by critique, I mean something fairly general because, you know, 13 year old with the first story, you don't want to do a clearing <laughs> critique of that. That doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, for the for about ten years, I've been involved with the Alpha Young Writers Workshop, which is a, a similar yeah. sort of teen writing workshop. And and yeah, I faced that yeah. same issue of how tough to be on the students because, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I mean, not I mean, the the critiques are one thing that I worry about a lot, but even just telling them what their economic prospects are for for writers, like how blunt do I want to <laughs> be about that? And you know, I want I want them to be forewarned, but I don't want them to just come to summer camp and be have their dreams crushed you know well um it's kind of funny because i find most of the students that we get seem pretty savvy about it from the internet i mean i, I remember one one-on-one session with a 13 year old girl where i said you know projecting forward i mean we keep most of the emphasis on the craft of writing and then at the very end we talk a little bit about career because we don't want a 13 year old focusing on you know having to submit stories and stuff um, but i remembered that she said well i know writing is a tough career to choose. So probably I'll go into English or history as a major in college and I'll have a, uh, you know, I'll either go into some kind of technical writing thing or I'll be a history professor and I'll do that for maybe 20 years. Then maybe eventually I'll be a full-time writer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think pre-internet, you wouldn't have necessarily found that, um, you know, (laughs) or we might just be getting, uh, you know, particularly savvy uh, kids because I I know um, 40 year olds who don't, don't have that much insight into what a writing career is. But yes, it is very important not to, words carry weight, a lot more weight to teenagers. Uh, and so we're very careful. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing we found with Alpha is that the student to apply are overwhelmingly female. I mean, we have about 20 students and usually there are, I mean, one or two boys. I think we had four one year. But do, do yeah. you, have you had that same experience with shared worlds? Yeah, I think it's more like usually 70, 30 or 65 uh uh, 35 um but yeah it's it's um it's it's definitely a lot a lot more girls and um i don't know i, I don't know why that is necessarily um but that's usually how it skews mm-hmm. um another thing i've noticed is that um you know most of the years that i've taught there i knew most of the books that the students had read you know a, a student would say uh I, I would ask someone oh who's your favorite author and they would say oh you've probably never heard of this person but lloyd alexander or something and I would say, dude, I've, I've heard of White Alexander. Come on, you know. But, you, you know, but now, like, I actually haven't heard of most of the uh, authors they've read because they're all these YA authors. And, you know, the YA stuff is really segregated in a way from the adult fantasy and science fiction. And I just wonder what sort of impact that'll have on so- the sense of fantasy and science fiction as a community. Um, I'm not really sure that. Our, my experience with shared worlds is that they raid every single section of the bookstore. And most of the kids we get are actually not going to the YA section. They're going to the adult fiction section. And, um, so I don't necessarily see that trend. Um, the other trend I hear people talk about a lot are, are that the next generation is so invested in, in, uh, you know, ebooks and whatnot. But most of our kids, uh, don't even use laptops to write, <laughs> you know, some of them do, but, um, you know, they do a lot of drafting still longhand and they, um, they, uh, they read physical books. So, you know, I don't know really that we can extrapolate, um, especially cause we're also dealing with, as you are with, with the, the ones who are like the really heavy duty readers and the, you know, they're not necessarily typical. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily see a YA trend necessarily. Um, I, I tend to recognize most of what they're telling me they, they've read. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about some of your other projects coming up. I, I saw you have an anthology you're working on called The Time Traveler's Almanac. Uh, yeah, that's coming out in March, um, co-edited 
by my wife, Anne, and it's a hundred years of uh, time travel uh, fiction uh, collected in one massive volume and uh, has everyone from, of course, Asimov to people you might not expect. Uh, one thing we found when looking at past time travel anthologies, uh, compilations of reprints, uh, we found that they were fairly conservative. Uh, and so there was a lot of room to put stuff in one volume that hadn't been, uh, you know, in conversation uh, in quite this way. Uh, well, could could you give some examples of some sort of out there time travel stories? Yeah, well, there's a guy uh, who, well, I mean, I don't have the book that book in front of me, um, but uh, there's a guy uh, uh, who has a, a story called uh, Lube, of all things, L U U B, uh, a writer from the from the '80s who who wasn't uh, very well known at the time, uh, but uh, uh, it's a very interesting story involving uh, witchcraft and time travel and. I think the main thing is that we had a lot of stories that uh, we were able to fit in because we also have a fantasy and horror sensibility and uh, not just sci-fi. And so we're not that interested in the logic of how you build a time machine or, or having the, the, the details behind it, but just more in is the emotional resonance right or the implication been set out correctly. Uh, Karen Hewler has a story in, in there that I think is is uh, a great story. And it's a great story because uh, it's about someone who time travels to get a better deal on a, an apartment in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, and so she's renting the apartment in the past and then she travels to the future to, to her day job. <laughs> <laughs> and so things like that, you know, it doesn't always have to be the fate of the world is hanging in the balance, you know. Uh, there's some very interesting things you can do. And so, you know, we have Jeffrey Landis and people like that who are, are known for having written classic stories. Uh, but we, you know, we have like Dean Francis Alfar, uh, a great Filipino writer who uh, has a story in there about a kind of a time travel magic shop. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's a great mix of stuff from all over the place. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, one thing I noticed reading Wonder Book is that there were quite a few references to Finnish authors. I was just wondering, mm. do you have some special connection to Finnish literature, or how did how did you come across all these Finnish authors in particular? Well, they they actually have a really vibrant uh, science fiction fantasy community uh, that they've worked on very hard, and as a result, they have a really strong support system. As a result, they have a higher than than normal percentage of, of really great writers uh, per capita, in a sense. Um, but also, they uh, you know back in the day in the in the '90s uh, when I was starting out and writing uh, fairly surreal stories. Uh, I was having some difficulty placing a lot of them in, in U.S. markets. And so I, I turned overseas and had a lot of stuff out in the Czech Republic and, and elsewhere. And one of the places I did have stories out was uh, in Finland. And uh, then just we just kind of gradually grew relationship. Uh, and then that relationship extended because of the fact that uh, the Finnish government's great about giving out translation grants. So we got some translation grants for the uh, the publishing company that we run, Cheeky Frog. Uh, and so it's just kind of a synergy that's grown up over time. Hmm. So, like, what are so, like what are say one or two Finnish authors that people should go check out? Well, I'm terrible on the pronunciations, as <laughs> as they themselves would point out whenever I'm there. <laughs> but hmm. uh, uh, of course, Tove Hansen or Johnson, uh, who did the Moomin comics, but also is uh, the Summer Book, is an amazing book for adults that is on the fringe of fantasy, um, set on a remote island, and is about the relationship between a a, a granddaughter and her grandmother um and there's a lot of the creative play that they uh engage in it's is kind of reminiscent of some of the things set out in wonder book and uh, lena cron uh lena cron um who's uh tanneron 
is just one of the most amazing works of, of 20th century fantasy, uh, about this, uh, woman sending back letters from, uh, a city, uh, of, uh, intelligent talking insects. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, both kind of a parable and it works on the surface level as well. And, um, there's, uh, the quantum thief author whose last name I would completely, uh, <laughs> annihilate if I tried to, to say it, uh, from Tor and, um, there's a writer, Lena uh, Likitalo, who, who's had a story in Weird Tales and, um, and also uh, has a, just was a finalist for the Writers of the Future contest, who's an up and coming talent. And, uh, gosh, there's a few others too. Um, and, uh, they're all in this Finnish anthology that we, we put out called It Came from the North, uh, last year in ebook format. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other projects you're working on that you'd like to mention and anthologies or things like that? Um, well, I'm finishing up the last stages of the, of the, the last edits on, on acceptance, the last novel, which, uh, is pretty funny because, uh, as you know, from having, uh, read authority, uh, there's kind of a manuscript in there that's kind of a weird manuscript written by one of the people at the, at the agency. And, and, um, and I'm actually going to be in a bed and breakfast right next to a lighthouse on the coast of California with my own marked up manuscript <laughs> doing the the final edits and it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a little meta <laughs> just a little meta <laughs> um but yeah beyond that I'm I'm working on a novel called The Book Murderer and then another one called Born which is a little bit like uh if you had Godzilla and Mothra fighting in the background while a Chekhov play was going on in the foreground uh so we'll see how that works out <laughs> and how and the book murderer could you give like a little capsule description of that yeah, it's literally about a guy who has this obviously deranged plan to try to destroy all the books in the world, which he knows is futile, but he's into quixotic quests. And so he, he does all kinds of things, including trying to interrupt writers' thought processes and, and, and stuff so that they won't write as much. And in some cases, uh, trying to steal manuscripts that haven't yet been, uh, you know, edit, manuscripts with edits on them that haven't yet been photocopied so that he can, <laughs> he can totally mess with writers. So there's a scene in there where, where there's a fight between him and this community college teacher who had not yet um, photocopied her manuscript and they're fighting it out in the parking lot because he's trying to get away with it. And, um, you know, and <laughs> at one point he goes on a book tour uh, to shadow an author as a, as the, as the assistant to, to learn more about the enemy. And, uh, um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of satirical, though it gets a little more darkly psychological by the end. And um, it does allow me to, to um, tell in disguise forms a lot of stories about book culture. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. And in wonder book, you mentioned uh, an upcoming project called the journals of Dr. Mormack. Uh, what's the status of that? That's uh, I've got about 55,000 words of that. And that's another novel between um, finishing Finch and, uh, finishing Annihilation. I, I worked on these three different novels and for various reasons got pulled off of them. But the journals of Dr. Mormack is kind of a alternate universe, parallel universe kind of, uh, thing, uh, involving the journals of basically a talking, a sentient mountain, um, out on a, on a remote planet who is being used by the angels who are real, but they're actually like an alien species to spy on various versions of alternate earth where something terrible is going to happen. And he spies on them through things like Luna moths and through flies that are actually transmitters and, um, and whatnot. And, 
it's a it's a it's a very um kind of out there sci-fi epic mm. is that a challenge having a mountain as a protagonist um so long as he's just writing a journal well he has avatars um so one of his avatars is actually sent back to stalingrad and alternate stalingrad during during world war ii um and so uh that gives me some latitude too is that he's able to kind of like uh butt off parts of himself as little little um <laughs> little expeditions <laughs> all right cool and do you have any uh, short stories or anything coming out no i've been so focused on on the novels that uh that i really haven't been doing much short fiction we will have a feminist sci-fi uh anthology coming out next year uh, from pm press and um there are some stories I want to write, but uh, mostly I want to finish up Acceptance. So I want to uh, spend most of my time just thinking about the book tour and and uh, kind of relaxing from writing for a while. Hmm. So. All right, great. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, best of luck with the rest of the book tour. And uh, thanks so much, Jeff Vandermeer, for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jeff Vandermeer for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing Dating for Geeks. And we're joined by not one, not two, but three guest geeks. So first up, we've got Eric Smith. He's the author of The Geek's Guide to Dating and co-founder of the Philadelphia-area blog Geekadelphia. His articles have appeared on BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, and Book Riot. And his essay Master Grief about breakups in Halo went viral in the fall of 2011. His first novel, Inked, will debut from Bloomsbury Spark this year. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got John Bones Rodriguez. He's an actor who's appeared in numerous commercials, plays, TV shows, and independent films. He's also the author of books such as Captain Kirk's Guide to Women and The Luckiest Guy, How to Propose, Get Married, and Stay in Love. A video of him proposing to his wife has almost a quarter million views on YouTube. So, Bones, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. And finally, we've got Marjorie M. Liu, who you may remember from our feature interview all the way back in Episode 4. She's the New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen novels in the romance and urban fantasy genres, including Tiger Eye, The Iron Hunt, and A Taste of Crimson. She's also written X-Men comics for Marvel, and she wrote the story for the upcoming animated film Avengers Confidential, Black Widow, and Punisher. So, Marjorie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. And so the first thing I just want to talk about is, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about how geek is going mainstream and it's kind of hip to be a geek and all this stuff. And I'm just wondering, is it still a big liability to be a geek? Or do you think, I mean, how much of a liability is it still? How much of it uh, does it help maybe these days? Uh, so, I mean, let's start off with Eric. What do you think about that in terms of how much of a liability is it today being a geek when it comes to dating? Uh, I don't think there's much of a liability uh, at all. You know, as as geeks, I feel like we're so I know, we're so passionate about all these various things that make us who we are that there's oh my goodness, so much more room for us to talk about you know all these you know little hobbies, all these little passion projects that I feel like dating's almost easier. You know, there's a lot to talk about and a lot to connect with. Um, so yeah, I yeah I don't see the liability. I I kind of love it. Hmm. Uh, Bones, do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, the question itself has an assumption in it that it should somehow um, be a positive or negative in your dating life. Hmm. And 
it seems like a whacked out question. It's actually part of why I wrote Captain Kirk's Guide to Women, because like I came across so many people like not wanting to admit that they were into Trek or a geek at all until like later on in the relationship for some crazy reason. And so for me, the question doesn't make sense. Does that make is that does that <laughs> make sense to you? Well, so you, you guys have never experienced any um, like romantic rejection or you've never felt <laughs> felt uh, reluctant to uh, say just how into comic books or anything? I mean, uh, Marjorie, you're, well, you're, la- you're well, laughing. I was just, you- just going to say that geeks or the stereotype of a geek just makes such an explicit condition that I think a large part of the planet feels uncomfortable about. I mean, everyone feels awkward when dating. And, you know, I know plenty of people who are incredibly geeky, who have lots of relationships. And I know people who are, quote, mainstream, who are struggling to have relationships. And so I think it, you know, it really just comes down to the individual. Uh, I mean, but but does anyone disagree that you should just, like, on, I mean, on the first date, should you just describe your entire comic book collection and all your favorite science fiction authors and stuff like that? Or should you tone it down a little bit on the first date? <laughs> I think it depends. I mean, I, I mean... Doesn't it depend on the the date and the person you're with? I mean, for me, I never felt like I had to hide who I was. You know, I never felt like I had to, you know, hide the fact that I was super geeky. Um, But, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, we all want to be accepted for who we are completely and not just for one aspect of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was was still dating on OkCupid, uh, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, they sort of make fun of me because I had this whole thing about, Oh, I like look at buildings while I was walking down the street to figure out where I would hide during the inevitable zombie apocalypse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they would tell me like, Eric, maybe you shouldn't have that on your dating profile. But you know, I kept it because the person that's going to want to date me is going to you know appreciate that sort of thing. Exactly. See, I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right there, you go. So Marjorie would be like, "Wait, this is the guy for me." Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's someone to get me. You know what I mean? If there is a liability to being a geek, um, it, I don't think it has to do with, you know, your enthusiasms for certain things, but more about how you operate in the world. Um, and this is what I mean. A lot of us nerds and geeks and whatever kind of want to be right about things all the, <laughs> kind of all the time. And there's no, there's no space for that in dating. Like, if you really want to talk about how much you like... I, whatever, that's just to say Star Trek, because that's my thing. But your date doesn't know anything about it. You have no business talking about it to someone who isn't interested in it with you. It, just like sports. If you're way into sports and your date is not, why are you wasting time with that? When you could be finding out about them and you can talk about mutual things. But, yeah, totally. It's unfair. <laughs> but then I think we're talking about basic social skills. And I think that social exactly. skills... But you're implying that geeks don't have social skills in the same way that you're saying that, that super jocks don't have social skills. And I think that, that this is just all across the board. If you if you don't have certain basic skills in in talking with others and reading people, then you're going to have a problem regardless of whether or not you're a geek or whatever. Uh, but I mean, so but would you guys disqualify someone? I mean, like Bones, if you were dating someone who like hated Star Trek, would that? I mean, I mean, so I mean, once I went out with a girl, and on our on the first date, she said that she didn't like George R. R. Martin because there was too much fantasy in it, <laughs> and that was just like I was just like, okay, I'm done. You know, this is <laughs> you know, I'm out. Um, I mean, what do you think? 
I think if that works for you, then great. Personally, I think that's the moronic thing to do. Uh. And, and I feel strongly about it. Here's why. Because we all want to be like the meat in the same sentence that you're talking about, how you want to be accepted for what you like and dislike. You are categorically c- cutting people off from you if they don't like what you do. So you are already putting out the energy of disqualification. So, of course, that's what you're going to find. Well, I have to agree with Bones on this one that I feel like it's very nice to connect with people over commonalities. But I think you also need to connect with people who are different and opposite, who bring something else to the table. And also, everything's proportionate, too. I mean, do I love fantasy novels more than human beings? You know, I would certainly <laughs> decline to date someone who likes comic books more than people. Uh, Eric, are you going to back me up on this one? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's always room to introduce that person to the yeah. stuff that you're really into. You know, so like if they aren't into a certain thing that you really care about, um, maybe don't give up just yet. Maybe you know, later down the line, introduce them to why, you know, this is why George R. R. Martin is so great. Let's, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Uh, and also like one of the best romances I ever read was Bread and Roses, which is the, it was a graphic novel written by um, Samuel R. Delaney. And it's about how he met his partner, Dennis. And these two could not be more opposite. I mean, they are so, so very different, but they also have one of the most amazing relationships I've ever seen. And so I think there has to be room for geek on geek love and there has to be room for guys like, you know, Chip and Dennis. <laughs> for total opposites. <laughs> that actually reminds me of, I don't know if you know her, Karen Joy Fowler's story about how she met her husband, but basically at the end of their first date, he said, I, I thought that was a great date, but I can tell just from talking to you that you're the kind of person who says they don't like science fiction, even though you've never read any. And, uh, and, and, and she said, that's not true. I love science fiction. And he said, oh, well, I, I guess I was wrong. We can talk about it on our next date. And she had never actually read any science fiction. And so she <laughs> went to the bookstore and said, I, I need to read some science fiction quick. Give me some books, you know. Um, that's such a cute, desperate girl story. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you don't think, I mean, it just seems like when you're dating someone, I mean, at some level, you want some commonality. And oh, I don't know, yeah. it's just hard for me to imagine someone who just hates the idea of fantasy novels being a good match for me. Well, right. and, if that's, and if that's what you need, that's what you need. I mean, everyone has different needs that have to be met. And if that's like a, if that's a deal breaker for you, then that's a deal breaker and that's important. I think that you have the opportunity to introduce someone to something that you love, watch it happen through their eyes and all that. My wife was not at all into Trek when I met her. And it's not like now she's a raving fan either, but she knows stuff and it's great. And she doesn't have to. It has nothing to do with why I'm with her. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, Eric, you mentioned your OkCupid profile. And that, that's something I want to talk about is just online dating generally. And is, is online dating a good place to, for geeks or to meet geeks, you think? Yeah, I think it's a good place for, you know, for anybody, for that matter. You know, it's a, uh, you know, you can really see what everyone is, you know, into. You can check out interests and then at the same time, find someone that's, you know, completely different, uh, like I did, uh, to go on some sort of, you know, new dating adventure. Uh, well, why don't you t- say a little bit more about what your experience was? Uh, well, I met, I, I met my fiance on OkCupid, oh, like, I guess it's two and a half years ago at this point. And, you know, we were, we were drastically different, um, and, and still are. Uh, but, you know, we bonded over, all sorts of little things and slowly learned to appreciate what each other I don't know, really cared about. Like, 
I got her really into video games, or at least watching me play them. And uh, <laughs> she got me into <laughs> a lot of movies that I wasn't otherwise uh, interested in. And uh, Name a title. Name a title. Come on. Oh my goodness. Admit she, it. She I want to really, hear it. She really likes Tyler Perry movies, which uh, was nice. my thing. <laughs> and now I watch all of them with her. <laughs> nice. How about uh, Bones and Marcia? What were your? Have you, do you guys have uh, experience with on, online dating? I don't have any experience with online dating, except for the fact that my my partner originally introduced himself like via email, but I don't know if that really counts as online. Um, you know, for me, like. And this was his pickup. The most successful pickup ever was the fact that he agreed to meet me at the Romance Writers of America convention. And if you want to think of a million different ways that can go wrong for a guy, like that's it. Because if he makes an off-color remark about women, if he's going to disparage the work, like that's the place where all the guy's baggage is going to come out. But um, but he picked a place that was my home base where I was comfortable. And it was oh. absolutely fantastic. And I think if part of your like geek orientation is books, like book readings, book events are amazing places. There's plenty of room to have a conversation while waiting in line to sign a book, get a book signed or, you know, and I'm moving, I guess I am moving away from online, like online dating. But like when I think about in real life, like, you know, get civic minded, like go to fundraisers, community meetings, gallery events. Um, you never know who you're going to encounter. Like, I, I know people who are like total squares, but you push a button and they can talk to you and cling on an Elvish. And <laughs> you would never know that. Uh, I definitely agree, agree with Marjorie that, uh, you know, book events and things like that. Are, I actually met my current girlfriend standing Yay! in line. Standing, <laughs> uh, standing in line at a Karen Russell uh, reading. But, um, yeah, I don't know. And But one thing I wanted to talk about is, um, is Eric, in your book, this this came up a little bit when we talked before, but... Uh, in your book, you you talk about um, meeting people at comic book stores and Starbucks and and stuff like that. And I'm very comfortable talking to people in contexts where I assume that they've come to socialize, like a you know a party or a um, you know a book event or something like that. But I'm not so comfortable going up to just somebody in a um, you know in a Starbucks or something where you know they look like they're doing something else, or I'm afraid that um, my attempts to chat them up would be unwelcome. Yeah. And so I, I just wonder what. How do you how do you sort of approach people in public places without being unwelcome or creepy or whatever? <laughs> uh, well, for me, it was all about trying to find some sort of like common interest, uh, like right off the bat, and I that would usually hinge on seeing them, oh, you know, reading a book or you know, writing something interesting or drawing. Um, without that sort of connection, I was kind of lost. <laughs> like that was what I I really needed. Um, and when I think it's something like that, and you're trying to you know, genuinely be interested in what it is they're doing. I think it's, I think it's a really easy way to go up and approach you know, a potential stranger. Uh, this is actually what I meant about wanting to be right about things. Um, it's, it's very much in the geek character to want to find the exact right thing to say or do in every situation <laughs> and to not be wrong and to not fail. And that desire to not fail at things is exactly what makes people fail at things. Because they'll never make the approach or, or, or make the attempt in anything. Am I getting too deep? Uh, I'm, have I um, opened the door that's like too much? Are we not ready for that yet? <laughs> well, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because in the last two years, I've spent more time with ex-jocks than I ever had in my life. Uh -huh. And these guys use their time really wisely. So if mm -hmm. they try and a girl says no, it's like it's, for them, it's a win. 
Like, you know, for them, just trying is a win. And when they try, they never leave the girl angry with them. If the girl says no, they're like, cool, and they keep it moving. They don't leave the girl scared or uncomfortable. And these guys are, like, awesome at reading rejection. Like, it's amazing how many dudes cannot read rejection. And so they keep going. And then for the girl and for everyone around them, it starts to get scary. And, you know, and so when I think a person is like honest and comfortable with themselves and they're having fun, all the weight comes off. But when you stake your life on it, like, you know, when this has to be like the perfect moment, it's really hard and everything becomes, you know, really overburdened. And I think it's easy, like, for one thing, if if speaking from the point of view of a woman, I mean, um, when you're, when I'm being approached by someone who who doesn't read, who can't read the rejection, when they can't read the hard no, um, all of a sudden, like, you realize you're not being, like, the woman, as a woman, I'm not being seen anymore. Like, I've become, like, a goal that has to be achieved. And in that moment, I realized that the other person, they don't really, they're not really taking, like, my safety and my humanity very seriously. Because if putting yourself out there means making the other person uncomfortable, that's not good. None of us want to be objects. We all want to be fully people. And there are many ways to objectify people through their physicalness, through their professions, and also through whatever uh, interests or, or, you know, big, huge interests they have. So if, if I ever tell someone, oh, I'm really into Star Trek, and, you know, and in the past or even now, people say, oh, I, I don't know anything about that. I've never even come close to that. Oh, that's just for whatever. My instant retort is that's okay. It's only for the highly intelligent. <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's my thing. And it doesn't mean it has to be their thing. Yeah. And in looking for a partner, it just seems like you have so much wider scope if you're not focused like that. Well, actually, I mean, Bone, speaking of Star Trek, I mean, you wrote this whole book, Captain Kirk's Guide to Women. Do you want to just say maybe like a, one or two things that uh, people can learn about dating from the example of Captain Kirk? Well, it's Captain Kirk's Guide to Women, How to Romance Any Woman in the Galaxy, guaranteed to help you make first contact and put your love life on warp drive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's pretty tongue-in-cheek, but I took the dating advice so seriously, and hopefully over this, in this conversation you can hear how seriously and passionate I am about, about that type of uh, subject. Uh, and for me, I talk about that the example of Captain Kirk is that he's a leader and he goes for his life. He, you know, his whole thing was for five years, it was to seek out new life, uh, new civilizations and boldly go where no man or woman has gone before. That was his mission. And people get drawn into someone who has a mission in life. Someone who has their ship together. (laughs) So that's what I talk about. Male, woman, whatever. It's about having your own life and seeing who wants to come along the journey with you rather than twisting and turning and, you know, trying to uh, be someone for this other person all the time. That it's perfectly fine to have your mission and to be with someone who has a, a similar mission, wants to go on the mission with you or has their own mission. All those things are great, but that you have a center of your life uh, and see who wants to come along. Mm. So, uh, so Marjorie, what do you think? Do you think of uh, Captain Kirk as a good uh, role model for uh, guys dating? Um, well, he had a good game. Um, <laughs> I mean, he certainly, Captain Kirk always had good game. He has good G, as we say. But 
as far as someone who I would want to spend the rest of my life with, I don't know if, if he's the exact model. He always came off as more of the love them and leave them type. <laughs> that, uh, well, that's actually what I talk about in the, in the book. And on the site, actually, there's an interview from um, Fox and Friends. Mm-hmm. And the guy asks why he was such a player. And my whole thesis of the book is that he's actually a romancer, which is why I titled it How to Romance, uh, in that he just loves life. And, you know, if you watch a show with this in mind, it's different than, than like the stereotype that we know. Um, he definitely used his sexuality to get out of jail <laughs> a number of times. But generally speaking, he kind of always fell in love each time, you know? So, like, and there were a couple of times that he absolutely, absolutely fell head over heels in, you know, the first 20 minutes, but absolutely fell head over heels. Ultimately, the, uh, the thesis of the book is that his real love was the Enterprise and her crew. That I definitely believe. Yeah, but that then, but then it's also been the same thing. Like the man who's more in love with his job than he is with, you know, the women around him. Uh, I I can understand that. I I understand that point of view. Um, I don't think he left. There's. I don't think anybody uh, that was left in the in the five years uh, was mad at him. In fact, he even got used once. He got used for his diseases. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in one of the episodes woman uh sleeps with him just so because her planet doesn't have any diseases so they were overpopulated so she sleeps with him just to get a disease from you talk about that's a terrible reason to sleep with him. <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh no <laughs> well i I mean, just speaking of, of using people like that, um, Eric, you know, when you were talking about The Geek's Guide to Dating, you were saying that you read all these dating books and that so many of them are, are sort of like these like um, pickup artist kind of stuff and that you wanted your book to be sort of a, a, a counter to that, to that or an antidote. Could you talk about that? Yeah, you know, like, oh, my goodness. So when, uh, when I first agreed to do the book, uh, you know, I spent a ton of time on, you know, various blogs and reading the OkCupid blogs, reading, uh, how about we, and then just picking up every dating book I could. And there was just this, I felt there's this terrible trend of, uh, Marjorie talked a bit about it, you know, women as objects, uh, throughout almost all of these books. And it just, it just irked me a lot. Uh, cause I just don't think that's the right way to approach things. Uh, so I was trying my best to write something that was, you know, definitely skewing away from that whole that pickup artist trend. Well, well, like you, uh, Eric, you talked about negging. Could you talk about that? Oh, where you say something negative to someone in order to keep talking to them and eventually hook up? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible. That's uh, that's no way to communicate with somebody. Uh, see, Bones, what, do you do? You follow any of this like pickup artist? Stuff or uh, when I first, yeah, when I was writing the book, I kind of, you know, wanted to find out what, what else people were saying. And, and, you know, all that, you know, the game came out and that kind of made a big splash and, and all that. And the thing with negging is the reason, and, and this is, again, this is male pickup to women stuff. It's because a lot of guys, if someone is pretty enough, if a girl is pretty enough, then there's, she kind of becomes an object and she can kind of do no wrong. And a lot of guys, especially the geek type, can really kind of give um, attributes to someone who's really pretty that they don't deserve. So some of that negging stuff uh, is a way to kind of stand out from the crowd. So a girl who, who has guys throw them, 
throwing themselves at her all the time. If there's a guy who doesn't do that, he sticks out. So that's yeah, kind of the But I don't know if that's the same thing as negging. I, I agree. I agree. But it's a way to stand out. See, Eric, were you about to say something? No, I was just going to say that's, that's like the wrong way to stand out, I think. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, so, I mean, on, on the one hand, you have um, these, these sort of pickup artist type books. And the other hand, you have romance novels. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, Marjorie, as, a, as someone who writes romance in the romance genre, what do you think about people modeling their uh, dating strategies after romance novels? Well, I mean, I think if a guy wants to read a romance novel, that's great. I mean, there's plenty to learn. I mean, as far as just, I guess, being straightforward with a woman, you know, this, uh, I would say the, the idea of, in romance novels, the idea of negative attention is not exactly high on the, the list of desirables. But I think in a more practical, I mean, if we're going to get really practical, let's not forget that half the world is female. And so if men drop their preconceptions and their formula, um, I think they would realize that they have an entire university that can teach them how to approach women. I think the key is to have the willingness to admit that you might carry scripts about the gender you're interested in that can prevent you from having a connection um, and from learning. Uh, I mean, Marcia, you mentioned that you met your current partner and you guys, you didn't meet on a dating site, but you kind of knew each other through your online presences before you actually met in person. And it seems like that's more and more common, right? I mean, um, do you think, do you guys all think that that's a good, you know, you just, you have a blog or a podcast, say, or something, and that's, you know, people get to know you through that. And that's a good, good way to, I mean, I've actually found, you know, since I started the, the po- doing a podcast, I have to say is actually really good, good for dating because you meet somebody and if they're interested in you, they can kind of go and listen to your podcast and see if they actually like you uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, decide whether they want to follow up on it um, without having to actually schedule a date or anything. <laughs> that is the ultimate in like geek, uh, like how can I use technology <laughs> and ahead of time? So I, there's no rejection involved at all, uh, and I won't know al- unless they come first. However, I actually think that's the future anyway, uh, and Tinder is right there, you know? Uh, what's that? Tinder is, it's an app, and it's basically grinder for straight people. Um, <laughs> and so for those of you who don't, who don't know, all the kids are using it today, uh, it's, you know, you go through who you, you can go, go through profiles and see who you like. If you, you can like them and if they like you back, then your numbers are exchanged. So you can text and communicate that way and maybe meet up for a drink or whatever <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it search your like Facebook friends too? Like it, it does. Yeah. It goes through. Well, that's scary. It is, but we can't stop it. You know, <laughs> like that's what's coming. So I think yeah. we should just get used to what's coming. Hmm. That kind of makes me think, just from a science fictional perspective, it's maybe in the future, just like you'll have sort of a um, uh, uh, an AI replica of yourself, right. and it'll just simulate virtual dates with all the mm-hmm. people on OkCupid, and then it'll tell <laughs> right. you, you know, which which of them turned out well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, how how is that really different though than than OkCupid or whatever? Uh, it's real. It's kind of like right now. It's like who's around me now. Yeah, I had a friend over at my house the other day using it, and uh, like it was, it was telling you like this person lives like four hundred, five hundred feet away from you, and it was kind of a little crazy. So it kind of gives you like little real time updates, sort of. Yeah, yeah. 
this person's mm. looking here, this person's looking there. Mm. So are there any other sites like that I should that I should know about? Dave's <laughs> <laughs> like, sign me up. Right. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I think the blo- I think having a podcast or or blog or video blog, it's you know it's inevitable. You know, all of, so much of our lives are going to be virtual, and you're going to be able to look up people and you know f- friends of friends, and eventually it's going to be friends of acquaintances of friends, and uh, until you see this person's whole life, and you're like, huh, I think I want to be part of that life or not. And then you find out if the person's actually posting their real life or not. But you, Eric, you had a funny story where you said that when you first started uh, messaging uh, the uh, woman who became your fiance, you didn't want to give her your last name because you didn't want her Googling you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, you know, if you Google me, um, that essay comes up, that the Master Chief essay pops up, and I didn't want her seeing and too much of my past yet without me being able to sort of talk to her about it. Um, I didn't want, I don't want my blog to pop up or, you know, the, the websites that I run. Uh, I wanted a chance to talk about who I was without the you know, internet doing it for me. Well, why don't you t- say a little bit more about the Master Chief essay and why? why oh, you... oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was back in, uh, uh, 2011. I, you know, I thought I had met this girl. I was gonna, you know, I, I thought I was going to get engaged. I thought I met this, the one and, uh, and I didn't. And I ended up selling the engagement ring that I had purchased on, uh, <laughs> and using that money to purchase a suit of Master Chief armor from the video game Halo. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> As one does. And, uh, yeah, I felt like, you know, each little piece I got back, I, I felt like I got a piece of myself back. And it was just, it was a really great cathartic experience. Uh, and then I wrote this little essay about it and it went, it went viral. It, people, all over the world read it. It was I was on the front page of Reddit twice, uh, on like Attack of the Show. It was it was all over the place. And I was like scared of it now that it was all out there. So I didn't want her to I didn't want anyone I was dating to see it right away until I could, you know, explain it. And and she like and she likes the armor. It's great. She uh <laughs> you know, when I when I when I realized that she was the one that I was gonna marry her, I bought she she had bought me a uh a mannequin to put the armor on and display it in my apartment. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's right. so sweet. Marjorie yeah. is loving this. This is so <laughs> metaphor. After your breakup, you got a suit of armor and then <laughs> found a new girl who told you you didn't have to wear it and you could put it somewhere else because she's going to love you. That yeah, is just yeah. fantastic <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Um, I guess another topic I wanted to bring up was just, uh, do you guys have advice for non-geeks when it comes to dating a geek? So I don't know why any non-geeks would be listening to this show, but if, if there are any non, <laughs> if there were a non-geek listening to this show who, who wanted to date a geek, like what are some things that that person should keep in mind? Just keep an open mind, you know, like, like my fiance doesn't like video games, like I was saying earlier. And, you know, I slowly got her into them despite the fact that, you know, she was pretty against it at first uh you know keeping that open mind opens you up to uh, getting into so many new things that you might love and you know otherwise wouldn't have bothered with to begin with well i mean bones uh your uh, captain kirk's guide to women's been out for a while right how yeah. what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten on it uh you know what people either love it or they hate it uh and, you know, of course, I concentrate on the people who hate it. <laughs> but, uh, and the people know, who love it don't say anything, and the people who hate it post all Right, all exactly, place, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I've gone to conventions, and I, and I do some speaking. I've done some speaking at, at them, and, 
you know, invariably the guys who hate it, they're the ones who are kind of looking for those three words that would make anybody fall in love with them, yeah. you know, and it's kind of this desire to skip the whole them knowing who I am before I, I get whatever it is that they want, whether it's sex, validation, whatever it is, um, you know, it's this desire to skip that, to skip the, the showing yourself and being vulnerable to someone. Um, and to skip the, the, the vulnerability that those guys like hate the book. Because like I said, I, it's tongue in cheek and it's jokey, but I really took the advice seriously. One of the, one of the reviews on Amazon, the guy's like, let me tell you how dumb this book is. It tells you to increase your woman's self-esteem. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm like, oh no. How do you argue with that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, if you, you know, if you feel like increasing your partner's self-esteem is a bad thing to do, you don't deserve anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. And Eric, I mean, your book's a lot more recent, but have you gotten much uh, feedback on it, on it already? No, not yet. It's only been out. It's been out like two months. So there hasn't, yeah, there really hasn't been anything, unfortunately. But I'm, you know, I'm hoping there's a, success story email that comes out of it at some point <laughs> yeah I mean, hopefully some of our listeners will pick up the book and then they can give you some feedback yeah, yeah. i'll definitely uh mail out to my list uh, of star trek guys oh great uh how about your how about you you know bones i mentioned this video of you proposing to your wife you want to tell us about that yeah you know um on my on my YouTube channel, it has a quarter of a million, but another channel picked it up that like a channel for proposals, so you know that one has a lot more, but, um, it was a long time ago. Now it was 2005. And, uh, I wrote this play. I met the, my wife in a theater company where, you know, we're both actors. And, uh, I wrote this play about conversations we had had in it. And unbeknownst to her, we went to perform this play that I had written. And, uh, about 75% of the way through the couple breaks up over this discussion about rings that they have. Um, but I flipped the script on her in front of the audience. <laughs> And I proposed to her, you know, there, and it was the best thing I've done. It was super cool and just so full. I was just nervous the whole night forgetting my lines and everything. You can actually watch me forget the lines right before I'm supposed to propose to her. <laughs> she feeds me what happens. Um, and thing is, this is in 2005, right? So we did it. We recorded it just for the heck of it, you know, just because I wanted to remember it. And then her parents who live in Seattle, we're, we're in New York, her parents in Seattle were like, oh, we want to see the video. And I said, oh, you know what? There's this new website called YouTube. <laughs> I'll put it up there. Well, how do you spell it? <laughs> you know, like, why oh, YouTube? So it kind of just, it was one of those first like natural uh, viral videos. You know, we didn't even, I had no idea how to increase it or anything. We just put it there and suddenly people were watching it. So um, super cool thing. Uh, so, so that website you mentioned where it's all proposal videos, were any of those geeky as well? Uh, that's funny. Actually, yeah, a lot of them are. There's a guy who does it like with a magic trick. That's one of my favorites. Um, it's, it's a YouTube, and the YouTube channel is, is Nice Guys Guide to Women. It's youtube.com slash nice guys guide to women. And um, there are a lot, of, a lot of fun ones up there. Yeah. Mm, cool. Uh, let's see, in Marjorie, we mentioned that you have this animated film coming out that you wrote the story for. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Avengers Confidential, Black Widow, and Punisher. Is there any yeah. romance in this? Uh, I There is, actually. Um, I wrote the story, and um, I think there may be more romance in the in the actual movie than what was in the story itself. <laughs> I think the adaptation was took that a little bit further. So, yes, for Black Widow, there is going to be a, a romantic storyline. Mm. So is there anything that uh, listeners can learn about dating from the lives of Black Widow and Punisher? That is very difficult and very dangerous and that there are no happy endings. (laughs) (laughs) Vigilantes have a really tough dating life. Yeah, but I wrote another, but I have another novel coming out at the end of the month called Labyrinth of Stars that's part of my Hunter Kiss series. And I can say in that, I think that for me is, has a better has a better message when it comes to romance and relationships and and sort of the you know sort of the power that comes from um having like someone that you trust at your side and so hopefully that will give a more more uplifting message for people <laughs> than than a black widow and punisher <laughs> all right cool so we're at about an hour here so we should start wrapping this up so why don't we just go around any uh, final thoughts anyone uh, eric any final thoughts just thanks for having me on this was this was a lot of fun <laughs> Yeah, I, I, this has been actually, I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you. Yep, yep. Yeah, ditto. Thank you, guys. Um, you know, for the people listening, I, I, you know, there's a paradigm about being a geek, and it's like, oh, I'm a geek, therefore the opposite sex finds me weird. And I think if you can just switch that idea in your head to I'm a geek, therefore I have high standards, <laughs> uh, I think that it won't be such a thing for you. You know, actively being actively interested in someone's happiness is irresistible. Yes. And you are worth finding someone who is also actively interested in your happiness. Mm-hmm. That's it. I'd add that I think the opposite sex, no matter if, wh- whoever you are, I think, I think we all think the other side is a little weird sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> and it's true. Uh, All right, great. So I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Eric Smith, author of The Geek's Guide to Dating, uh, Bones Rodriguez, author of Captain Kirk's Guide to Women, and Marjorie M. Liu, author of, or who wrote the story for the film, Adventures Confidential, Black Widow and Punisher. So uh, thanks everyone so much for being on the show. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that was our panel. So now it's time for our special presentation of my short story, Power Armor Love Story which originally appeared back in 2012 in the John Joseph Adams anthology Armored from Bain Books. I thought that since it's Valentine's Day, it might be nice to have a love story, and this one goes so well with Eric's story about his Halo armor that I couldn't resist including it here. But if you're not interested in the story, you can stop listening now. There won't be any more show afterward. The story is performed by Norm Sherman, and this recording originally appeared in episode 272 of the Drabblecast podcast, and you can learn more about that at drabblecast.org. You can also find the text of this story online at lightspeedmagazine.com. And now, here's Power Armor, A Love Story. It was quite a party. The women wore gowns. The men wore tuxedos. Anthony Blair wore power armor. 
armor that was sleek and black and polished, and made not a whisper as Blair paced the lawn behind his mansion, passing a word here or there with one of his guests. In those days, the most advanced exoskeletons were crude affairs, and Blair's armor seemed decades, if not centuries, ahead of its time. But he was an inventor, after all, one who in the past several years had introduced any number of groundbreaking new technologies. And that was about all anyone knew of Anthony Blair, reclusive genius. He was seldom seen and never without his armor, and he politely rebuffed all inquiries into his past. So it had attracted considerable interest when he'd purchased a house on the outskirts of Washington, a move that seemed to signal him taking a greater interest in public affairs. For his housewarming, he'd sent out scores of invitations to politicians, pundits, business leaders, celebrities, and scientists. Such a gathering of notables, along with the chance to get a rare glimpse of Blair himself, would have been enough to make this the hottest ticket in town. But there was more. Blair had let it be known that tonight he'd be making an important announcement. Speculation was frenzied. Finally, Blair hopped up onto the patio and called for everyone's attention, his voice amplified by speakers built into the torso of his suit. From what could be seen of him through his transparent visor, he seemed a handsome man of about forty, with a penetrating gaze and a sardonic grin. He proceeded to lay out his plans for a new non-profit group, the Anthony Blair Foundation, dedicated to promoting civil liberties worldwide, and he invited his guests to get involved. He wrapped things up with a toast, thanking everyone for coming. He pointed an armored finger down into his wine glass, and a large plastic straw emerged and began suctioning up the wine, which Blair then drank moments later from a tube inside his helmet. As his guests sipped their drinks, they conferred in puzzled tones about whether that had been the important announcement, in which case the evening was proving a terrible letdown. When no announcement of any greater import seemed likely to be forthcoming, they began to drift away. Blair moved from conversation to conversation, wishing everyone a good night. A distinguished-looking gentleman said to him, Mr. Blair, I'd like to introduce you to a colleague of mine, Dr. Mira Valentik. She wore a red dress and had inky black hair. Blair reached out with his giant metal fingers and lightly shook her hand. Pleased to meet you, doctor. He asked about her work, and she described her research in gene sequencing. He listened intently and asked many questions, which led her to describe her graduate studies, then a childhood obsession with amphibians. As they talked, the other guests excused themselves one by one, and the lawn slowly emptied until Blair and Mira stood alone. And now I've told you everything about myself, she said, but I still don't know anything about you. Not much to tell, he said. She chuckled. After a moment, he said, I've had a very nice time talking with you, Dr. Valentik. Please call me Mira. Mira, 
he said. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like we're on the same wavelength somehow. Yes, she said. Me too. He lowered his voice. So I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone. He had her full attention now. I'm from the future, he said. She regarded him uncertainly, as if this might be a joke. <laughs> People wondered, she said. I didn't believe it. It seems impossible. It's not impossible, he said. Just very difficult. She thought for a moment. So what's it like, the future? Maybe I'll tell you, he said, next time I see you. Next time? There will be a next time, won't there? I should certainly hope your bosses would arrange for us to meet again, now that you've managed to wrangle one big secret out of me. My bosses? At the museum? No, in the government, I mean. I don't... He waved a hand. It's fine, really. I don't mind being spied on. My armor and I are big unknowns, and I don't blame folks for wanting to keep an eye on us. That's their job. Your job. She was silent. Finally, she said, When did you know? When I first saw you. What? From across the yard. I'm awfully clever, Mira. Bullshit, she said. No one's that clever. I am, he said. I didn't rise to my position by accident, you know. What position? Maybe I'll tell you, he said. Next time I see you. The next time was two weeks later, downtown, at the first public fundraiser for the Anthony Blair Foundation. She approached him as the event was winding down. Mira, he said. So nice to see you again. Well, you were right, she said. Keep feeding me information and you'll be seeing a lot more of me. He smiled. In that case, what would you like to know? Your armor, she said. Where'd you get it? I stole it. Oh? We thought it must be one of your inventions. It is, he said. I invented it and then I stole it. Sounds like there's a story there. There is, he said, but let's not go into it now. He glanced about the room, then turned back to her. Hey, he said, would you like to get out of here? Later, as they walked along the river beneath a sky full of stars, he said, I'd like to take you out to dinner sometime. I'd like that. He was silent for a while. Finally, he said, if we're going to keep seeing each other, there's something I have to tell you. She waited. My armor. I never take it off. What? It's sort of something I swore. Never? Right. But how do you eat? Through the straw. It filters poisons. And, I mean, how do you bathe? Go to the bathroom? The armor handles everything. It's very advanced. Wow, she said. I know that sounds strange, but you'll understand once you hear the whole story. After a moment, she said, So what's the whole story? He sighed. You know I'm starting this new foundation. Don't you wonder why? Because you care about civil liberties? 
But why? She said nothing. It's because in the future, where I come from, there are no civil liberties, none. Oh, she said. I had never been disloyal, he said softly. You can't be where I come from. Our thoughts are monitored. I'd been identified early as a promising scientist, and I had risen through the ranks to head of my research division. We'd developed a high-energy device that possessed some unusual properties, like it could project a man-sized object into the past, creating a branching timeline. Theoretically, at least. Completely useless as far as our leaders were concerned, but interesting. Then one day the thought popped into my head. I could escape. He stopped and stared out over the water. Once I'd had the thought, I knew it was only a matter of time before I'd be picked up for the neural re-education, so I had to act fast. The problem was, even if I succeeded in traveling into the past, my voyage would create a temporal wake large enough for them to send someone after me. He met her eyes. I don't mean to scare you, Mira, but where I come from there are secret police, unlike anything you can imagine. Cyborgs, shapeshifters, I'd have no chance against one of them, unless... He showed the hint of a smile. In the same lab was something else we'd been working on. This armor. He raised his gauntleted hand. Wearing this, I'd be impervious to anything, so I could escape, but at a cost. I must never take off the armor, not for an instant, because if I did, the agent sent to punish me would surely strike. She glanced around at the trees, the shadows. She shivered. And that's the story, he said. So, do you still want to grab dinner sometime? I'll understand if you say no. I... I'll have to think about it, she said. This is a lot to take in. I know, he said. After a moment, he added, I should probably be getting back. All right. As they retraced their route, she thought, he never takes off the armor. Never. Not for an instant, he'd said. That was going to make it very hard, she thought to kill him. He took her to one of the finest restaurants in Washington, and it made quite a sight to see him sitting there in his armor, with a napkin in his lap, suctioning up his entree through the straw in his finger. In spite of that, it was a pleasant meal. That is, until the middle of dessert, when he suddenly said, I have something to ask of you. Yes, she said. About your bosses. At the museum, she said sweetly. Now, he smiled back. In the government, I mean. All right, yes. What? Do they know what you are? He said, suddenly serious. What do you mean? Do they know, he said calmly, that you were sent from the future to kill me? <laughs> what? She laughed. He waited. You think I'm... Yes, he said. She put down her fork. Finally, she said. Yes, they know. They watched each other. 
They want your armor very badly, she said. They've made repeated overtures and have concluded that you'll never cooperate. They're right, he said. So they want the armor. I want you. We have an understanding. I see. When did you know, she said. When I first saw you from across the yard. She laughed. Bullshit. Why didn't you say anything? I was having a nice time. I didn't want to spoil the mood. I think you're lying, she said. I think you just figured it out now. He shrugged. So I guess that's that, she said, tossing her napkin out on the table and reaching for her purse. Wait, he said. I want to say something. She paused. We find ourselves in a branching timeline. We can't return to our own time, and no one else can follow us here. So they'll never know whether you succeeded or not. You're suggesting, she said coldly, that I abandon my mission. I'm suggesting you do what's right, he said. What's best for both of us. She stood. I am not a traitor. You are. And the punishment for that is death, as you well know. I was assigned this mission, and the faith of my superiors was not misplaced. Your armor is a clever gadget, I'll grant you, but no defenses can hold forever, and no matter how long it takes, no matter how safe you think you are, before this is over, I will watch you drown in blood. People at nearby tables were staring. Thanks for dinner, she said, and strode away. He called her the next day. I had a really nice time last night, he said. She stared at the phone. Are you out of your mind? No, he said. Do you want to come over sometime? She hesitated. Is this some sort of trick, she said. Some trap? No. I mean, what are you, a class eight? Class nine, she said. We're in the 21st century. You could probably fight off a tank platoon. I don't even have a gun. I just want to talk. About what, she said. Treason? No, no treason, I promise. What, then? Old books, shows, people. We're the only ones who remember the future. You're not afraid? No, the armor will protect me. How can you be sure? I designed it, he said. And what if I find a weakness? You won't. After a moment, she sighed. All right, fine. Swing by around eight, he said. I'll cook dinner. She drove over to his mansion, and he cooked her dinner, and they had a very nice time talking about old books and shows and people that were now known only to the two of them. Finally, she stretched and yawned. Well, it's late. You're welcome to stay, he said. I have a spare bedroom. Eight, actually. I don't think so, she said. Why not? It makes perfect sense. Does it? I mean, what's your plan, he said, to disappear, change into someone else, and try to catch me off guard? It won't work. I'll never take off the armor, not for you or anyone. 
Your only hope is to find a weakness in the armor, and you won't get a better chance to study it than by staying right here with me, he added. Besides, I like the way you look now. She chuckled. So what's in it for you? The pleasure of your company. Plus, I'll know where you are, and I won't have to go around wondering if everyone I meet is a secret assassin. That's it? Sounds like the risks outweigh the benefits. Let me worry about that, he said. Anyway, I think you're underestimating the pleasure of your company. Ha! Huh. Also, if you get to know me better, you might decide you don't really want to kill me. I doubt that, she said. Actually, I'm getting the opposite vibe. He laughed. And you said no treason, you promised. You're right. Sorry. Finally, she said, All right, I'll think about it. Let's see the room. He gave her a tour of the mansion, and when she saw the guest room, she said, Hey, this is really nice. She sat on the mattress and bounced a few times, testing it. All right, I'll stay for a bit. Great, he said. She sprawled on the comforter, grinning. You want to slip into something more comfortable? He laughed. Good night, Mira. I'll see you in the morning. She stayed with him for weeks, and they talked and talked until they knew practically everything about each other. They went out to dinner and to movies and plays, and they went on long, long walks, much longer than any normal person could walk, thanks to his armor and her cybernetics. Many nights they simply lounged about, doing nothing at all. One night they played chess. The first game ended with his king pinned in a corner. She put him in check with her queen, and he moved to an adjacent square. She moved her queen to put him in check again, and he moved back to the first square. This was repeated several times. The game was declared a draw. The second game ended the same way, and the third. I suppose you think this is terribly funny, she said. He shrugged. She swept the pieces onto the floor and stood. As she strode away, he called, I'm sorry, Mira. She ignored him. But when she was out in the hallway, she smiled. Her anger and frustration were feigned. Actually, things were going quite well. She'd discovered a weakness in his armor. They took vacations together to London, New York, Tokyo in Paris at the top of the Eiffel Tower as they stood looking out over the rivers and rooftops she said well you are right damn it as always I've grown awfully fond of you Blair and now the future seems like such a long time ago so I guess you're safe I'm glad to hear it he said though you'll forgive me if I don't strip off the armor just this second she laughed of course Six months later, though, it was starting to become an issue. One night at dinner, she said to him, We need to talk. Yes. Are you ever going to take off that armor? She said. He set down his utensils and studied her. When I fled into the past, I swore I would never take off this armor, not for an instant. Because of me? She said. Because I'd be sent after you? But that's all changed now. I knew there would come a time, he said, 
when I'd start feeling safe, start letting my guard down. That's why I made the resolution then, when my sense of the danger was at its most acute. After a moment, she said, You still don't trust me. He said nothing. Look at me, she said. Can't you just look at me with your super genius gaze and see that I'm telling the truth? No, he said. Then I guess you're not as smart as you think you are, she said, as you pretend to be. Do you remember what you said, Mira, when we first met? No matter how long it takes, no matter how safe you think you are. I know what I said. Look, I'm sorry, all right? I was a different person then. It was a stupid thing to say. I wish I could take it back. But I can't. There was a long silence. Finally, she said, What are we doing here? If you're never going to trust me, what's even the point of this? Enjoying each other's company? That was the point, I thought. And in five years, she said, Ten? Will we still just be sitting across a table from each other, with you in a suit of armor? I don't take off the armor. You knew that from the start. So there's nothing I can do to prove myself. There is one thing, he said, very serious. You can hold my life in your hands and choose to spare me. But how can that ever happen, she said, if you won't take off the armor? I don't know. When he woke the next morning, she was gone. He paced the empty rooms, seeking her. Mira, he called, his voice echoing. He tried her phone, but got no response. He left message after message. Finally, she answered. Please stop calling me, she said. Where are you? Away, she said. Away from that house, away from you. There are other men, you know, who aren't afraid. Please come back. Will you take off that armor? Ever? You know I can't. She hung up. Six weeks passed without a word. Then one night his doorbell rang and he opened the door to find her standing there. I'm sorry, she said. He made her tea and she sat in the kitchen and said, Look, I understand why you wear the armor. It's all tied up with who you are and why we're here together, and I accept that. I hope someday I can prove myself to you, but... Even if you never take it off, I don't care. We understand each other in a way that no one else ever will. Let's fly to Paris, he said. Tonight, we had good times there. Yes, she said. All right. They hopped a private jet, and by the next morning they were in Paris. They revisited all their old haunts. On the third night there, they ate dinner at a hotel then took a midnight walk down a cobbled street beside the Seine. Suddenly, Mira said, We're being followed. A hundred yards behind them lurked three men dressed in black. One carried a briefcase. Are they from the future? No. Impossible. Then what threat could they be to us? I don't know, he said. Let's not find out. He began to hurry. Suddenly he halted. Uh-oh. What? she said. I can't move. 
She glanced about as more men appeared from the shadows. They're special forces, she said. Black ops. How do you know? She smiled. Because they're with me. Eight men surrounded Blair. Several carried boxes. I told you you weren't the only man in my life, she said. One of the men stepped forward. He had a heavy jaw and short gray hair and cold, hard eyes. Captain? Mira nodded. The man set his briefcase on the ground and bent to open it. How are you doing this? Blair said. We introduced a virus through the suit's communications array. That's impossible, said Blair. Equipment to interface with the suit won't even exist for... What, you mean like this? She said, rising, gadget in hand. Blair studied it, his face pale. All right, I'm impressed, he said. Cramming that much R&D into so short a time? But it won't matter. In a few minutes, you don't have a few minutes, she said. The men opened boxes, yanked out equipment. Blair's eyes darted about. Laser cutters, he said. Diamond-tipped saws? You can't honestly believe those will even scratch this armor. No, Mira said, nodding at the men. But they did. She added, what can I say? They're not geniuses. The captain frowned. Then Mira backhanded him across the face, and his head flew a hundred feet through the air and splashed into the river. The men screamed and drew weapons. Two ran. Of course, it did them no good. A minute later, Mira was piling their bodies on the ground at Blair's feet. I admit, I'm a bit nervous now, he said. She grinned. Told you I'd make you drown in blood. She fiddled with her gadget, and the armor knelt stiffly, and its right hand reached out and plunged its straw deep into the chest of the nearest corpse. Blair grimaced and turned his head aside as blood bubbled from the tube inside his helmet. Wow, he said. Paris is definitely not as much fun as I remember. Keep laughing, she said. While you can. The straw drained corpse after corpse. Soon the blood rose above Blair's lips and threatened to engulf his nose. Any last words, she said. <coughs> he said. She came and stood inches from his visor. Sorry, I didn't catch that. He watched her, his eyes wide. Do we agree, she said. That there's absolutely nothing stopping me from killing you. He said. Good, she smiled. Then take off that stupid armor and kiss me. She flipped a switch and suddenly Blair could move again. He tore off his helmet and hurled it to the ground, then swept her up in his arms, pressing his lips to hers. Later, as they lay naked on a hotel bed, he murmured, I knew about your device. She stirred and said drowsily, Hmm? I could have stopped the blood. I was never in any danger. I know, she said. The armor is flawless. After a moment, she added, It only ever had one weakness. Me, he said, rolling onto his side and studying her. We understand each other perfectly, don't we? Yes, she said. I think so. 
You still haven't decided whether or not to kill me, have you? No, she said. But either way, you wanted me out of the armor. Yes, and you took it off, even knowing the danger. I love you, Mira, he said. I couldn't stand being separated from you another moment. Sounds like the risks outweigh the rewards. I think you're underestimating the rewards, he said, and she chuckled. He added, if your mission is that important to you, then go ahead and kill me. You might as well, if you don't love me. I think that's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said to me, she said. And for a long time after that, they lay curled together, drifting in and out of sleep. And if they dreamed, it was of the future, not the distant future from which they'd come, a cold and sterile place of surveillance and mind control, but the immediate future of the breakfast croissants they'd soon enjoy and the stroll they'd take through the fresh morning air, hand in hand. And the armor stood in a nearby corner like some exotic decoration, like some improbable furniture watching over them with its transparent visor, a silent presence waiting there, sleek, black, polished, and empty. And that was our show. So thanks again to Eric Smith, Bones Rodriguez, and Marjorie Wu for being our guest geeks. Thanks as well to Norm Sherman for giving such a great performance of my story. And of course, thanks again to Jeff Vandermeer for being our guest today. I'd also like to give a special thank you to my very talented girlfriend, Stephanie, for all her love and support. Happy Valentine's Day. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Frank424 and Knight of Cups. And a huge, huge thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Raymond Chan, crowdfunder number 65, Juan San Miguel, crowdfunder number 38, Nick Suffolk, crowdfunder number 32, and Kurt Donaldson, crowdfunder number 62. To see a list of all our crowdfunders, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And speaking of crowdfunding, as I'm recording this, Lightspeed Magazine's Women Destroy SF Kickstarter has raised almost $33,000 which will go toward funding special issues of Lightspeed and Nightmare magazines written and edited entirely by women. If the total hits 35000 by midnight, February 16th, the staff of Lightspeed will also produce a special issue of Fantasy Magazine, written entirely by women and edited by longtime Fantasy Magazine editor Kat Rambo. To learn more, visit lightspeedmagazine.com slash kickstarter. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program... 
tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.